But uh, either way, I enjoyed it. And so we're continuing our, our, our King's Sermon Series today. This is the fourth week. We talked the first week about this amazing guy, Jesus, and then the crowds and then the disciples that were following Him. Next, we moved into the Beatitudes and talked about how we're being transformed in Christ to grow in these things, to look for these things in our life. It's an inward-out transformation. We talked about being the salt. We talked about being the light. Uh, children, you can be dismissed. Sorry. <laughs> See, I'm not a professional. <laughs> and uh, then we moved into how Jesus fulfills the law. And, and this entire chapter is really all entirely about fulfillment and fulfillment in Christ. Because none of the things that we had talked about previously, including what we're talking about today, all culminates in the accomplished works of Jesus Christ on the cross by living that perfect sinless life that we can't lead. And so we see that he kind of attacked the Pharisees. You're going to need to have more righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees of the present day. And now our Lord and Savior begins his interpretation of his law. And so the scribes and the Pharisees have their own interpretation of the law. You know, the things that were carved on stone tablets. And maybe remember the story of the Pilgrim's Progress about how, you know, Moses came up and, and beat this guy, this poor guy named Faithful, and knocked him down the mountain. But then there was a gentleman that had holes and scars in his hands that stood in between Moses and Faithful and took that, that burden, that blame on him. If you want to know more, you can always listen to last week, but I'm not going to repeat myself even though it all ties together. So we are talking about that interpretation of the law today through Jesus, and I also want you to think about some key patriarchs and some key people throughout all of this. I want you to think about what Adam's life was like in regards to the law. I want you to think what Noah's life was like in regards to the law. And then also to think about Abraham and how he was 430 years before the law even came himself. And, and that was long after Adam, long after Noah. So where does the law fit? Where does the law play in? How do we keep this law? And what was it originally meant to do? So hopefully we can answer all those questions for you today to some satisfactory degree. But as God would have it, we're going to talk about anger. <laughs> Quick, get the doors. <laughs> we're going to talk about adultery, and we're going to talk about divorce. And man, I'm excited. How great. Those are three wonderful things we deal with. No, they, they, they are all still very good things, but we need to interpret it rightly, what Jesus' intent and design for the church and what life is like. So without further ado, let's pray and let's talk about Jesus. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that you pour on our lives. And thank you for your law, Lord, to give us an example, to give us something to follow, to understand uh, about your righteousness and who you are in yourself. So we have the lawgiver living within us through the Holy Spirit. So May you convict us this morning, Lord, as well as may you comfort us this morning, Lord, on both sides of this fence as we talk about law, as we talk about grace, but more so how we talk about how you're the fulfillment of everything that we've been looking for in our lives. So I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. So our sermon text for today, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 32, um, and just so you're 
aware, the very first scripture reading that we had was Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, which are the Ten Commandments. Uh, everyone's heard of these. It's also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you need a you know, line-by-line -line comparison. It's a pretty big deal when it's in the Bible more than once, um, as well as it's even brought up here in this text. So, um, But that is where the things that we're talking about today initially come from. And then they also span out in Deuteronomy chapter 21, but, but we'll get to that when it comes. And while you're turning and still looking for Matthew chapter 5 in, in these passages, uh, I want to be very clear with you about law and lawlessness, just the same. I, I don't promote either of these as a form of earning righteousness or our standing in Christ. Uh, the law is there. It's good. It's to give us that example. It's to keep us safe. It's to keep healthy relationships going within uh, not just the church, but in, in our lives and, and the lives of those around us. But, but that law and legalism saying that we have to do something to earn favor from God is absolutely wrong because the favor comes from God first and then obedience to the law follows after that initial faith comes, after that initial salvation comes when we have the Holy Spirit. We want to keep God's law. It's not that we have to in a, in a way to earn something. It's that we want to. Again, this is all about inward-out transformations and think about heart motives. When you have to do something, you're much more apt to not want to do that, right? But when you want to do something, like there's nothing holding you back, right? And so we can experience that freedom from the law of sin and death in Christ. But when we experience that freedom from the law of sin and death, lawlessness can happen which is I can just do whatever I want, whenever I want, and there's no punishment, God just loves me, so on and so forth. That's not a healthy lifestyle either. Because to not uh, understand who we are in light of who God is and, and to be obedient from the heart uh, is going to lead us down bad paths. The lawlessness is just as deadly as the law-filled believer. So the fine line is always somewhere in between in everything that we do. And as we understand the Bible, we need to learn to uh, rely more and more on, on the grace of God, not resulting in lawlessness, but not pulling away completely from any type of you know, law whatsoever. So even though that's a big word jumble, I hope it lands and I hope it falls and it makes sense because when we discuss the law and especially about things of, of, of anger and you know, the law of sin and death and, and divorce and all these things, it's not so much that we're talking about those because inside I know and believe that everyone knows that these things are the way that they're explained here, that they are good. Like, divorce isn't necessarily the best thing, but there are situations where it happens. Being angry at someone, holy cow, I wish I could get away from that sin, but these uncommunicated expectations that we have with other people, like, they lead us astray sometimes, and it's very difficult and very hard not to get angry when you don't get your own way, which, again, can go back to sin because you've made it all about you. And it's not all about you. This world isn't all about us individually. It's about Jesus. And so this is his world, his story, his law, his, his giving, his Holy Spirit he's blessed us with. And so just know that. So even though that's wordy, I hope it, I hope it lands well with you all. But let's read. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 32. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So yeah, law. <laughs> it's awfully heavy in here, isn't it? The air stopped flowing or something? <laughs> like, it's getting kind of hot. It's getting kind of hot. I don't know. I don't know. No, I, I, of course, like, for me, I, I cannot absolutely condemn anybody in these capacities because I would be a hypocrite. I, you know, certainly, like, all these things have happened in the lives of believers. The most important thing, though, is to realize just how depraved we really are in light of what God's original intent was for the law. So we hear, and we've seen these Ten Commandments before. We've all probably read them before. We've all heard them. They all make perfect sense. Thou shall not murder, right? Like, like that makes perfect sense. Uh, thou shall not commit adultery, you know, for... Some it makes perfect sense, others not so much. And then the thing about divorce. Uh, there's also three more that we're going to next week, but this is about your heart and, and God's law. And again, remember, we're talking about inward-out transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're also talking about fulfillment in Christ and how He has done that. And so think about it in capacity to the hearers. Like, you have heard that it was said of old. So understand that as much as we've heard the Ten Commandments and so on and so forth, the people in the audience had heard the Ten Commandments. And so you have heard it said. Now they didn't read their Bibles, which you know, coincidentally is very similar to today's society too. There's many Christians who do not read the Word of God themselves. And, and there's a problem there, right? Like you've heard it said, but do you understand what it means in a sense? And so the people of that day were mostly hearers. And again, remember, take us back to that audience where Jesus is sitting on the mountain. You've got the crowds of people that are like, man, this guy's amazing. He's healed people. He's done all these miracles. There's something about this guy. I wonder what he can do for me. And then there's the disciples who gave up 
what they were doing at that present time to follow this uh, teacher, this Messiah, this rabbi, that he's obviously onto something. He's, he's been doing this for a long time. And as we even read in Luke, like he was in the synagogues early in his life and he was correcting the teachers early on in his life. Like there's something really special about this guy. Everybody there knows that. And this is what they're saying too. In this sense, like you, you'll read it at the, at the end of chapter 7 where they're like, oh, he spoke with such authority. Who is this guy? Well, this is exactly where this type of authority comes from. Because you see the first sentence. You have heard that it was said of old, but I say to you. So Jesus is not getting rid of the law. As we know from before, he's not come to abolish it. But he also said just because it's old doesn't mean you understand it and that it stands on its own ground by itself. Because the great I am, who was and is and will to come, has been there since the dawn of time. So he is the oldest. And you'll notice from uh, each of these discourses that there are those three things. There's the initial, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And then he gives a practical Jesus application, which is always really confusing to the vast majority of hearers. You know, we get to the parables too, and that's always a, a little bit confusing. But there's always that application that he has. So you have heard it said, but I say to you, and then there's an application in each one of these discourses. And we're going to follow that here a little bit. So you have heard it said of old. So he's, he's saying, you know this, you've heard this. And then where he's going is obviously he's going to the original Ten Commandments that uh, Moses has done, as well as for this first one in verse 21, when he's talking about liable to judgment, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, uh, talking about establishing judges and rulers who will reign in righteousness over you and will help you with these legal disparities or things of that nature righteously. That's the game plan, right? Like, you know, road to hell is paved with good intentions, if you will. And so the Pharisees and the scribes were misinterpreting, misusing, and misapplying a lot of this law that was out there. So Deuteronomy 16 says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. And so it, it's obvious if, if you were to go and physically murder someone today, there's going to be repercussions, right? You know, maybe you could run away and try to hide, but odds are there's going to be repercussions. It's the same thing back then, same thing as it is today. But Jesus, again, going from the initial heart motive of that, shows that when you hate someone, not that it is the same as murder, but it qualifies under that line of murder because it's a murderous heart because you want to hurt that person that you are angry at. Um, one such example is always idolatry. You know, depending on what that is in your life, whether it's money, your car, your friends, your work, your family, whatever you value high in your life, if someone was to take that away from you, you would want to hurt them. And so that's how we know an idol. And so what he's talking about here is, is the hate. So if you look at verse 22, what I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And that falls in very firstly. You shall not murder, or whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus says, whoever is angry 
Whoever is angry at his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so I have no doubt in my mind that we have all hated someone in some capacity for whatever, and we've all called people names or something to that effect, like you fool. It's tep the, the Greek word is raka, which, which uh, is kind of like imbecile, buffoon, uh, that, that type of word and terminology. Not really that important, but again, the I say to you also establishes the authority and the interpretation of where Jesus is coming from. So, the murdering, the murdering, hate is murder from a spiritual standpoint, from the original heart motives. And again, think about Adam, and think about Noah, and think about Abraham, how they were all before you know, the, the stone law that was there, how did they follow it? And they followed it from the heart, very similarly. And that was God's original design for everything, was all heart motives, not outward actions. But we, over time, have twisted it, that it all falls under outward actions rather than inward heart motives, thus making it acceptable in some degree to, to hate. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the greatest sins that we accept, there's a book by, by Jerry Bridges, but it's gossip. One of the greatest sins we accept is speaking ill of one another. And that's hate. And, and that's also one of the culture's greatest sins that they accept is hate. Speaking ill of another person. That's just, well, they deserve it, right? Like, but it's not the case. They don't per se deserve it. There's a misunderstanding. There's poor communication. There's lots of things uh, that can go either way with that. And so we see the application in the next section, verses uh, 23 to 26. I uh, want you to see what, what God's intention is and his plan was that we always reconcile with your brother. So look at verse 23 and 24 there. You see very simply, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember your brother has something against you, leave and go be reconciled to him and then come and offer your gift after that. Reconciliation is very important to God. In fact, that is the ministry that he has given us. If we were to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we will see that when we are saved and we're given the Spirit, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, we've been created into a new creation, and we've been made ambassadors for Christ to carry out these things, to uphold this law, to work through this. Also, if you were to go back very quickly to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes here, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, and then blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so what is a peacemaker? One who ends the hostility between them. And so we see this, obviously, in the atoning work of Christ on the cross, that we can stop being at enmity with God, stop being against his will and against his design, and then actually be uh, accepted to and restored to a right and a real relationship, which is what reconciliation means, being restored to a right and real relationship. But he also says in verse 25 to do it swiftly. Okay? Now that's interesting, except unless when you tie it into verse 26. For I tell you, or sorry, verse 26, truly I say to you, never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay? We can tie this into Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, which is another one of our scripture readings. But I want you to see, and I want you to hear, and I want you to know that 
having anger with your brother, and if you do not resolve it quickly, it festers and it grows and it can become a much, much larger problem. So what he's talking about, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him, unless your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And so Matthew is divided into five different blocks of teaching. And we see that in Matthew 18. Uh, if, if you can, please turn to that. That was one of our scripture readings today. And it's the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's only a few more pages down from, from where it's at. But we see this story. And we see this king who, for, who forgave his servant a, a massive debt. And what does that servant go and do? He immediately goes out and harasses the guy, chokes him even, it says, pay your debt, pay me what you owe. And then what does he do? He turns him over to the judge and the guards, and they put him in jail until he pays it out. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in jail, but if you're in jail, how do you make money to pay for your bail? You can't. That's the moral of the story here, is that you can't. And so when he throws him in jail, he throws him in jail and locks away the key. So maybe his family will be able to work to pay and provide for him, but he's been taken out of the picture, right? Absolutely, 100%. And you read at the end, you know, um, and in his anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which is impossible. But Jesus adds at the end of this, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, we talk a lot about heart, and I guess I, I need to, to re-emphasize this with you, because heart is the centrality, the epicenter of everything that you are as a human being by cultural standards in Israel terms, okay? So we hear the, the great commandments, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Now, heart is first, right, in that phrase. It's first because it encapsulates what the next three things are, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Your emotional intelligence, your uh, spiritual you know, acuity, as well as your, your physicalness of who you are. The heart encapsulated all of that. So now you know that when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, it's just everything that you are, very simply. And, and it's not unreasonable that our Creator would want His creation to love Him in such a capacity. It's not unreasonable to think that in the slightest degree. The unfortunate thing is that that sin breaks us apart, and we get angry at God and, and because we don't have all the things that we think we should have. All the, uh, the fame, the fortune, the friends, the family, you know, the work, the, the toys, the anything. Like, it, it just goes on and on and on and on. And we get mad at him for that. And here's the thing that we need to really see in this, and one of the most famous questions is, is God is so good, why does he allow bad things to happen? Right? Maybe most of us have heard that. If God's so good, why does he allow bad things to happen? The problem is perception, right? The perception of reality. Because I kind of throw it back, and I'm like, well, why do you do bad things? 
Why do you keep doing bad things? Why do you think of people this way? Why do you, why do you lie? Why do you cheat? Why do you steal? Why do you murder? Which is hate. Why do you adulterize? Why do you, you know, have an imagination about things that you should not have an imagination about in the same capacity? And so when we think about it that way, we see exactly what Jesus is talking about in his law here. And so let me, let me kind of box it in for you. Look at verse 21 and then look at verse 26. Verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, makes sense, very common, very plain. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you paid the last penny. Now, since everyone has hated in their life, since everyone has done that, where does this leave us, right? Like, who, who, we, we're all liable to judgment, in a sense, in just this capacity alone. We're, we haven't even talked about all the other different laws and things that are going on out there. But just from our own inward sinful nature that's bent to our own you know, desires and our own whims, we see that we have murdered. We have hurt other people. We have written them off. We have locked them in a you know, metaphorical jail, if you will, and put them in a different place in our lives than what should have been. But what if... Again, you know, we see God's plan and God's original design. So we see this fulfillment, though, in Christ in all of this. And the biggest thing that you need to know is that I know of a righteous judge. I know of a judge that is impartial, who does not show partiality to sinners or sin or anything like that. He is purely righteous, which means he only does what is right. And so that, obviously, is God the Father. And we, we see that. And each one of us has our own individual judgment day, so to speak. So, how will we pay the last penny if we are already in prison and have been judged for the atrocities that we've done? So, make it simple. Obviously, most of us know that Jesus Christ has paid it all for our sins. And we see this just in the verses up. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so Jesus stands in our place having paid that fine that we so rightly owe God for the atrocities that we've caused. Because we've given him plenty to be upset at us about, right? And yet, we see also throughout all of this anger section, you see that massive gospel word reconciliation in which we can have peace with God. We don't have to be at enmity with one another. He, we actually can begin to grow and to understand who he is and what he's done and how he works in our lives by the blessing of the Holy Spirit because Jesus did what he said he was going to do by living that perfect, sinless life. He is the law giver, and within us is the law keeper. So even though we may stumble and fall, we will not stay there in that sin, and we are given the option to repent, and of course, the grace of God and the mercy of God are something that we always need to hold on to and stand with. So, your heart will deceive you. Make no mistake about that. But our heart and God's law, you can see that by the blessing of the Holy Spirit that these things are going to be changed, especially when you look at the Beatitudes, because that is exactly what's happening in the life of a new believer. They are coming to terms with how they indeed are poor in spiritual wealth, poor in spirit. They eventually will mourn over the sin 
that is in their lives as well as the lives of those that are around them. And then they are meek, they are strong and confident, yet humble and not proud of themselves because they realize that there is this absolute need for a savior because I cannot do it myself. But much of the world, and of course culture says, I can do it myself, only the strong shall survive, this, that, and the other. Countercultural. Jesus and everything about him is countercultural. Like, if you were to examine all the world's religions, you will see that aside from true biblical Christianity, which is uh, repentance and faith in Christ, that every other uh, religion is having you climb up a ladder to earn your own righteousness. And the question is, how does you trying to earn your own righteousness outweigh your bad deeds on a daily basis. So you might have good deeds on a daily basis, and I know you got bad deeds on a daily basis because your mind wanders, this, that, and the other. So how is that scale ever going to weigh out? And so it's not. And especially when you consider that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That leads us all to be under judgment because the original intent of the law was to not even hate your neighbor. And in fact, Jesus, you know, aside from love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's an outpouring from inside out transformation. It's not what you do, it's, it's what you think more so than what you do. So you can actually see that here in this next one when we talk about lust real quick. Uh, your eyes are a window to your covetous heart. Now, much of scripture is very poetic and I want you to think of this little paragraph in terms of poetry. I want you to think, uh, there's four verses here. So each verse, first one's A, the second verse is B, the third verse is B, and the fourth verse is A. A is physical, B is spiritual. So just so you can see it, I'm going to read it, A and A. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. So that's the physical aspect of the law of adultery or lust. Now go to the spiritual aspect of it. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So you can see kind of the poetic fashion. You see the physical aspect of it, and you see the spiritual aspect of this law just the same and our interpretation. And you see, obviously, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's right out of the Ten Commandments. Uh, again, like everyone heard it. Everyone understood it. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. I get it. Uh, but this whole thing, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That was shocking to them because, again, this shows that everyone, and it's not just limited to men, uh, men and women alike have, you know, adultery issues. Like, you can't admit, like, guys that, like, like, as a guy, I could say we have this old adage, like, if, if I wasn't looking, I'd be dead. Right? Like most guys say that. And it's just stupid. But it's what we say. Absolutely. And so, yeah, like we see that. And 
you know, some of the clothes and the fashion today are, are a little loose and it leads men's minds to wander and this, that, and the other. And the same thing happens to women. Like you see the Adonis guy is all beefcake, you know, might be dumber than a box of rocks, but man, he's got a fine body, you know, like, like that, you know. That's just, that's just the way the culture is and the way that we work as a society. Like if you look at Hollywood as our, as our epicenter for culture, like look at those beauty standards that come rolling out of Hollywood. Like they're obscene. They're absurd. Like no one can meet up with that. But man, like if we could though, that'd be great. And so we see that spiritual nature. And so Jesus isn't saying like, if your eye causes you to sin because, you know, you, you rub it up on somebody or do something weird like that, you should pluck it out. Just the same as if your hand causes you to sin, like if you physically sin and use your hand. He's not saying that, but he's showing the severity of the sin within us that will cause it. And you will see that what he's talking about really is that we all have adulterous hearts. The grass always looks greener on the other side, doesn't it? Like... That's the nature of life for some reason, and that's the covetousness. So if your eye, which is coveting something that you don't have, like, oh, I wish I really had that, it's better to, to not look at all is what he's saying. Like, if that's the issue, like, don't physically remove your eye, but, like, you need, and I always think about Paul, what he talks about in uh, Philippians chapter 4. Like, whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is righteous, think about these things. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And, and so, if only it was that easy. <laughs> just constantly just think about Jesus all the time. You'll be fine. But that's not the, the case, but it is also the case. Because there's many times where we're putting ourselves in situations where there's temptations. And those temptations will lead you down paths to more temptations and to more actions. Again, he's not saying that just thinking about it is the same as doing it. Because obviously physically doing it is much worse than just thinking it. But it starts from the heart. Because if you're ever going to physically adulterize, you're going to be mentally thinking about it long before you physically do it. And that's the danger. And that's why this is a huge necessity and to be saved because our hearts are so wayward and so elsewhere in all of our lives because they are just about us and what we think will please us and what we think will make it happy. And so you see that application in there too. Like Jesus, again, consider your hearts in all of these matters. Consider that it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. So not to say that we've all adulterized or things like that, but I'm willing to bet that most everyone in this room has probably thought about someone else in an inappropriate manner at some point in time. And so, again, you can see how much of a slave we can be to sin because I would never physically do it, but for sure, like, it's happened in my head. And I'm like, get out of my head. And I can't make it get out of my head because that's the heart brokenness and that's the nature of humanity and that's what Christ is showing us, just how broken we are because you can't even keep your thoughts straight, let alone your actions. And so... The very last one here, the, the third point, 
there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It talks about divorce, and it's a little bit different, and it does tie into the lust, and it does tie into the adultery a little bit. But you have heard it said, and so I just want to take you back to Deuteronomy 24, chapter 1, and I want you to see exactly how Pharisees and scribes twist it because that's exactly what they did. And at this culture and at this time, a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce because she burnt breakfast. That's right. You women know where you're at right now. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so anyway, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Follow me here, or try to follow me here, okay? When a man takes a wife and marries her, okay, this is normal, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, okay, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she then departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that your Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. We're all clear, right? <laughs> all right, I read that a little fast, but, but understand that, yeah, there's, there's some definite verbiage issues, and there needs to be some clarity within this as well. Like, what has found some indecency within her meant? Like, Jesus is very clear about the only real grounds for divorce is by uh, sexual immorality. And that's what they're talking about, in essence, in the indecency. Like, this was God's original plan and original design. And we're going to go to Matthew chapter 19, because that was a really powerful, you know, you have to see that the two become one. And that, you know, God doesn't necessarily separate those people even though those people may separate those people. God may not separate those people because those two have become one flesh to work together in their lives. And then, of course, you know, multiple marriages, multiple relationships, so on and so forth. You kind of lose and forget exactly what's going on and what you're doing and who you're here for and who you're here with, things of that nature. But they had turned it around that any man can give his wife a certificate of divorce for any reason. And so that's exactly the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because if you had known God's original design for you know, marriage in itself, then, then you would see that the man would hold fast to the woman and the two become one. And they work through those differences. They reconcile. They communicate effectively. But unfortunately, we live in a broken world, right? And when we live in that broken world, even though those ideals are there, they don't always play out that well. And so, again, the grace and mercy of God to show us what his original design is and where he's going and what he's doing and how he has fulfilled them himself, you need to see also that there is no separation for us in Christ. We, as God's children, as the blessing of the Holy Spirit, now have that as a seal and a guarantee within us that we will never be apart 
from God again. And maybe you've heard the metaphors, or maybe you remember when I preached on Ephesians chapter 5, God created marriage to show his relationship between him and his people. And then we've turned it to all kinds of different things over the centuries. Make no mistake. But Ephesians chapter 5, God's original design, go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and, and we see the original design that the man leaves the wife and they become one. They work together. They have all their issues you know, together. They work things out. And that's the design. But God's designed to show originally that his relationship as creator of heaven and earth with his church, his people, his body of believers. That's exactly what marriage was created for in the first place. It's not man-made. Even though we've twisted it and made it man-made, and um, our man-made laws and creeds, we were singing that song this morning, and for the life of me, I can't remember right now. But, uh, yeah, oh, we, you have caused the blind to see, but we have blinded them again with our man-made laws and creeds. And I'm like, dang, we really have. And we see that in this culture, and we see that uh, in our culture just the same too. That, that is exactly where we are at in this. And so people need to rightly understand this in order to rightly understand how they need a savior in all of this. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to skip the Matthew 19, verses 3 to 12, but I encourage you to, to read that in some capacity. But overall, in, in all of this, hopefully you've seen that there's a problem <laughs> in each of us that we do hate, that we do covet things that we don't have, whether that be people or things, that we do get divorced from you know, poor communications or poor ideals or just sometimes for no reason at all because we don't hold it as a high regard as what Christ has given as a high regard. And so, I hope I haven't crushed any of you today with the law because that's not the intention is to crush you with it. Like if I was to tell you, oh, you've got to keep these things and if you don't keep these things, you're just going to hell in a handbag. Like that's not the case by any means because I shouldn't be up here because I'm a sinner. I mean, I'm a sinner saved by grace. And it is that grace alone, that unmerited favor of God by sending his son into the likeness of sinful flesh to lead that perfect life, to die on the cross as that ceremonial, sacrificial atonement for sins. Because remember, Jesus didn't just fill the moral law. He filled the ceremonial laws. He filled the civil laws. You know, he filled the food laws, the national laws, all the laws. He also filled all the prophecies that were spoken about him. And so we see that, that through Christ alone and the fulfillment that he's had, that we have any hope and that we have any chance for a better life, for us to be changed and to be transformed. And we see that so beautifully here on the Sermon on the Mount because this is God himself telling you what his kingdom was originally designed to be. And I hope you can agree that it is a beautiful thing that what it is. And, it, and the laws are there to protect us and to keep us safe from hurting ourselves. 
We might not agree with all of them, but that is exactly why they're there. But praise be to God that he has caused us to be born again to new life, that we can become obedient from the heart, not from the letter, not from the law. Because if we try to be obedient from the letter and from the law, you're going to fail. And you see that. Like, thou shall not murder. Great, I'm not going to physically kill anybody. I'm not that bad. But how many people have you had disagreements with, sharp disagreements with? How many people have you cursed out? How many people, you know, have you had some type of issue with that, that left you both kind of at odds with one another? And yet here we are. So praise be to God for all the work that he's done, but most importantly, that reconciliation that we talked about in regards to that anger. Because to be restored to a right and a real relationship with the creator of heaven and earth and everything in it is the most beautiful thing I think I could think of. Because I don't worry about very much anymore other than what's going on <laughs> in the world, right? Like, okay, so that doesn't really work. But I know where I'm going. I know who I am. I know why I'm here. And those are three very important things, right? Like, I can worry about all kinds of foolish things. But I want you to know this, too, that when we worry, we're not trusting in God. And that is a sin, too, even though it's not in this text. But when we worry, we're not trusting in God. And that's, that's a sin because it's not faith. It's not trust. It's not belief. And what does God require of us? Repentance and belief. To confess that he is Lord, to have a contrite heart that is genuinely sorrowful, as is explained in the, the Sermon on the Mount, those who mourn will see the kingdom of heaven. And then conversion, the changing of who we are. And the law itself cannot enable us to change who we are. That is purely a blessing from God. So see all that Christ has done and realize the fulfillment that he is. I hope this has been encouraging for all of us. It's obviously hard to talk about in regards to the law, especially adultery, especially divorce, because I know we've all been through it, and I certainly don't want us to be condemned, but I want us to see that we are in desperate need of a Savior because there's no way we can do this on our own. So praise be to God. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for all that's going on uh, in our lives and the lives of those that are around us, uh, especially in the lives of the church. I'm excited to see you know, where we're going and what we're doing. I'm also excited to see what this room will, will look like when everyone's not sick and ill and dealing with uh, mad issues and we can all just simply come and worship and be glad in you, Lord. And so we just thank you for all the work that you're doing in our lives and those around us, as well as the community of Genoa, and just give you much praise and thanksgiving in worship, both in word and in deed. All this I pray forever and ever in my Lord and Savior Jesus' name. Amen.